HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host, and I'm on the road today. I'm up in uh, Kittery, Maine. It's next to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, it's March 2022. This show will air in April of 2022. Um, well, wh- what can I tell you about Portsmouth and Kittery? Portsmouth, in, in my youth, was a salty seaport. There used to be an Air Force base, and there there was a working Navy yard. You can imagine it was very diverse and um you know, thriving all types from working class up. Um, and, and now it's really become the center of food and drink in uh, New England. It To me, it rivals Portland and Boston. So we're in a very special place. I think I ran into a friend. He had some German brewers going up to Portland, and they happened to stop off here. And, and, and uh, I'm in K- Tributary Brewing in Kittery, Maine, a place I've heard of for a long time. And I'm going to talk with one of the brewers here. So he's going to introduce himself. Um, he, he's a young guy who's worked in the business. And uh, we're tasting some delicious beers. And we'll talk about beer styles as well. Woody? Hey there, Jimmy. Woody Ma here. I am one of the brewers at Tributary Brewing Company, a disciple of uh, the illustrious Todd Mott. He is my father. But, you know, I'm trying to forge my own path. Well, you sure are, man. I, I, I know that I had met... Um, Todd a number of years ago with with one of his friends, and we're going to introduce some other guests later. But the whole point is, I'm up here at Tributary. This is a place when we're talking about, you know, why craft beer, why on-premise, why draft, why beer styles. This is a great place to start. I I walked in. It was everything you want. There was a really great little live music playing. The bar is perfect. I looked at, at the beer selection, and there was a range of styles. There was a Pilsner. There was a Porter a pale ale and, and some dark German beers. So I'm thrilled to be here and I, I'm not leaving. We're going to hang out. So tell us about you, Woody. So you went to school, you were, you were studying something, but eventually you worked in a brewery. So what were some of the breweries you worked in before you worked at Tributary? So when I decided to move away from the finance field, uh, it was right as Tributary was actually opening and you know helping my parents set up the, the few weeks prior to getting the show started, so to say, I elected that 
I didn't want to work in an office and I wanted to work with my hands and create something that will truly make people happy because I've seen the effects that has uh, from Todd's years spent in the industry. So out of college, I decided to um, look around, see what I could get, had a few uh, interviews that didn't pan out, but I landed at Wormtown in Worcester. Hey, Ben. Hope you're doing well, sir. Love it there. Great place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that so that was a part-time work. I was living in Alston, Massachusetts at the time. This was 2015. And living in Boston, you need to make up those hours so you can afford to enjoy your time. So my second job I picked up shortly thereafter at Stoneface Brewing Company in Newington, New Hampshire. After a few months of splitting time between, you know, living at the central point of Alston, going west to Worcester and coming north to New Hampshire, an opportunity came um, to my door that Stoneface was looking to you know, expand. And that meant they needed someone to pick up some cellaring work and devote more time in the packaging department. So I decided to go full-time there. And shortly thereafter, I actually moved back up to uh, the New Hampshire area. Well, you know, so much has changed in the last 15 years in the craft beer industry. It used to be that people were home brewers, started with a small system. But what, what were some of the tasks that you learned in, in those two breweries, Stone Stoneface and, and Wormtown? I mean, you, you obviously still start by washing kegs, right? Indeed. And I think my first day at Wormtown, we packaged 90 barrels of Bee Hoppy. And, you know, not knowing too much about how to be a... Uh, safe worker at that time. I threw my back out on the first day. Uh, but fortunately, at that point, I was young and resilient, and I, I, I made a comeback. But, you know, it, it's just so important to understand, you know, these very, I guess, jumping off points, you know, to get into the industry. You got to start with the packaging. You know, it, it's the most, I guess, uh, forward way to understand, you know, importance of cleanliness, sanitation, you know, differing between, oh, what's a CIP with, you know, a uh, caustic solution versus, you know, using acids to um, sanitize tanks, understanding what the finished product is supposed to be like and how to appropriately uh, package that and get it out to the market. And so, you know, I it was a crash course. It's a lot more than just than brewing beer on my stove and Wondering why it, it spoils. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I, you know, started home brewing when I was 21 on my 21st birthday. I got a very rudimentary kit and I made some god awful beers. Uh, but you know, it it really makes me gain a lot of appreciation for those early steps that you know a lot of people in our industry tend to go through before kind of making the professional uh, plunge. Well, it's great. I mean, I'm, I, so I came in, and the first beer I'm having is a Pils. Tell me about the Pils. Because we're going to talk about some beer styles today, too, because, like I said, you, you've got some dark German beers we're going to get to. You've got a Pils. Uh, there's a pale ale here that, that I've had several times that, that I really like. But let's talk about this Pils. Yes. So uh, we are drinking Nebenfluss, which is German for – or it's not exact translation, but – Oh. Oh, wait. Is, who, who's your friend? He just walked uh, in on us. Oh, hi, I'm Horst Dornbusch, and I was born in Dusseldorf, Germany, and my native language is German, and I've been in North America since 1969, and I just corrected my friend Woody's German pronunciation and translation. I apologize. 
Well, it's it's great. Just that gives you a sense of when you walk into Tributary Brewing, you're going to run into some of the beer luminaries from the world. And, and he's the guy that, that was here with the German brewers. But we're going to get to him later. But Woody, Ebenfluss. Nebenfluss. So, Nebenfluss. So German for Tributary. Uh, since Tributary's inception, you know, it's always been very important for us to put out a wide array of beers in our portfolio. That stems from Todd's time at brew pubs where, you know, having that home home brewer mentality, he really elected to have a offer a wide array from, you know, styles native to the US, uh, Belgium, England, Germany, Czech Republic, so on and so forth. And with that in mind, uh, over time, we've kind of cultivated a repertoire of Pilsners, you know, we'll do a Czech Pils, German Pils, Italian Pilsner. We have an American uh, style, all uh, malted barley Pilsner that we brew as well. And it's, for me, it's just fascinating kind of understanding that the ingredients that we try to source from their kind of local um, or their, their primary locale, you know, whether it's the hops, the malt, and bring those in and utilize those to kind of embellish the greatness that you know a moravian malt has versus one grown in um, germany so i know you're really into the history i mean it was two years ago tom acatelli wrote that great book about pilsner which i think uh told the story of was it bavaria and bohemia um are, did you read that book i haven't read it yet but for the recommendation i will uh certainly have to dig that out and uh give it a read well let, let's go into pill so there's so many different styles of Pilsner. I'm a little confused. Like last summer, I was really digging a lot of Italian-style Pils, and now you're you're telling me there's this German-style Pils. Do you you tell me the difference between a couple of these different Pilsner styles, and then we'll ask our, our German friend here too. Yeah, uh, he he can correct me when I uh, butcher the uh, the differences. But yeah, so. Josef Grohl was uh, commissioned by Urkel in the 19th century to bring modern um, modern lager brewing to Bohemia. And there, you know, he created Pilsner Urkel, and that revolutionized beer in Europe. And that quickly uh, became the most popular beer on the market. And the Germans were scrambling like crazy to combat that um that force coming from the east. And so they adopted, um, you know, the pale malt and followed uh, kind of their traditional lager brewing techniques. Uh, but, you know, you have distinct differences given like water profiles where water in the Czech Republic is very soft, but you have um, harder water in Germany. And because of that, German uh, Pilsners tend to be a little more um, bitter and hop forward than the Czech variety. I believe that they are paler and more effervescent and dry in the finish. Uh, and so, you know, with those in mind, when Todd and I and uh, other former disciples kind of come together and sometimes Horst, we are lucky enough to have Horst chip into these uh, um, ingredient making processes, you know, we want to kind of learn the history, do the reading and between Horst's uh, book, Beers of the World, as well as the Michael Jackson uh, Beer Companion, we, you know, whenever it comes to Brew Day, 
I always read both of their uh, takes on the beer that we're making. That really gets me jazzed, and I'm just excited for the brew day, and I, I have zero patience. So there's classic styles, and yet there's hundreds of styles. Um, what, one, you mentioned some people that have worked with your dad, Todd Mott. Who's the guy that, that opened up, uh, is it Black Hog in Connecticut? That's Tyler Jones, and um, Tyler, you know, I knew him as my dad's assistant. He was also my high school uh, chemistry tutor. And, you know, fortunately, we met at the Jimmy LaPonza Lounge in Portsmouth Brewery. He was able to have a beer to help guide me through, uh, you know, learning all about natural logs and how to apply that to uh, uh, balancing pHs and all that uh, fun nitty gritty stuff. But I'm talking about brewing legends. I mean, we can talk about your dad. So, you know, we've, we, we knew all these guys from, from the past and the future, Garrett Oliver of Brooklyn brewery and so many others that we've interviewed on the show. But, um, your dad really stands out because he's, he's uniquely new England, isn't he? Indeed. He's a Connecticut man born and raised and, you know, he, he's an artist at his heart. Um, you know, he got his master's in fine art at uh, Boston University in pottery. He wanted to be a, a pottery professor. The, I guess, job market wasn't too hot for that back in the late 80s. But in that time, he also got into home brewing. And he, you know, hobby turned into a passion. The passion brought him into a career. And, you know, we can go on and on, but the, the rest is really history and well-recorded already. Well, and, and what just testament to, to this place now that your family has made, Tributary Brewing, is that I did walk in, and our good friend, who to me is one of the esteemed you know, German beer experts that we know of, is, is Mr. Horst Thornbush, was just hanging out here. So we, we got him to come on the show. Horst, um, what is it about Tributary? Like, I, I, I think we first met together with Todd Mott many years ago at your house, and we did a great show. So just tell us about what it is about Todd and Tributary and why you're here today, too. Well, uh, Todd and I have worked together on several beers for maybe three decades. So we are some of the pioneers from the days of innocence when the craft brew movement started, and we have been, remained friends ever since. Uh, I deeply respect Todd and what he does. He is indeed a creative person. And uh, in order to be a good brewer and a brewer who can make many, many different styles, you have to really understand both your ingredients and your processes. And that is much more complicated than a lot of people think. It's really, uh, uh, brew, brewing is both science and art. You need to understand chemistry, physics, and actually aesthetics as well. And then you have to be able to control it from beginning to end. And this is something that Todd has acquired as a skill, as a complex skill for almost 40 years. And for that, I greatly respect him. And so I'm very happy to be his friend and I come to brew, uh, to tributary, very happily to taste his new creations and their new ones every time I show up. All right, we're gonna say we're, we're gonna keep talking to Horst as well. So, Woody, what's the next beer you have? I, I love that you you picked out four different beers for me to try. Thank you. Well, I wanted to give you a a broad array, a, a, a shining example of what you can kind of come to expect when you come to tributary. Because as I said earlier, we really want to have representation from all the great. Uh, beer lineages that kind of have brought us to the contemporary uh, craft brew scene. So next we're going to be drinking our California Common. 
this guy here. Cheers. Cheers. Well, again, we're, you're talking me through styles. Um, tell me about this style. So this is a favorite of mine. And, well, actually, I like a whole lot of styles. But when, gosh, I, I imagine Tributary was probably less than a year old. Um, they decided to make a California comment. I think one of uh, the former brewers, Jeff Goodnow, he, uh, I think, brought the idea of making a Cali Common. Um, so if you're not familiar with Cali Common uh, or California Common, it is a beer that when the gold rush occurred out west, uh, Bavarian immigrants moved that way and they saw a opportunity to um, come and wet the whistles of those miners who were, you know, so diligently digging the earth and plucking plucking the gold. So I, I saw it on your Instagram. So San Francisco grew from like a little village of a thousand people to a hundred thousand, all of them lusty and trying to get rich overnight. Oh, indeed. They were, um, they were a rough bunch back then. And being a rough bunch, they had to have beer to satiate those thirsts and, you know, relax at the end of the day. So, you know, uh, the German immigrants that came, they brought their uh, processes that, you know, they had acquired back in the old country. And because, you know, uh, yes, because and their yeast, the bottom fermenting lager yeast. But because out west, it's warmer than the caves in Bavaria the yeast had to uh, ferment at a warmer temperature. So the Cali Common, um, it is pretty much an amber lager that we ferment a little bit on the warmer side. And with that, you get a little bit more of a fruitiness from the uh, fermentation profile. So let me ask you something. I have horses here too. Is Cali California Common, is that, how is that different from a Kolsch? In Germany, you want to tackle that? We'll get horse on there. It's of course an ale. It's a, it's a <clears throat> top fermented beer, whereas the California Common is a bottom fermented beer. So you have two different types of yeast. Um, one is called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the top fermenting yeast. The other one is called Saccharomyces pastorianus, a bottom fermenting yeast. The bottom fermenting yeast wants cold temperatures, but in California, uh, before the age of refrigeration, you couldn't get cold. Uh, uh, you couldn't get uh, cooling. So you were fermenting the beers at a temperature that was way too high for the yeast. And so the yeast mutated to adapt to its new environment and it started to throw a lot of esters and fruity flavors. So this is basically a warm fermented lager which is unique in the world because nobody in his right mind would ferment a lager at the high temperature that you normally ferment an ale. So that's why that beer is very unique. And also the, 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 um, the, the grains are American barleys, uh, sometimes six row barleys, but not always. And the hops, the traditional hops would have been in those days, the cluster, which is one of the earliest indigenous grown American hop varieties, which we think is a hybrid between British imported hops and an, the one of the three American wild hops, namely uh, the hops called uh, uh, Humulus lupulus neo-Mexicanos. Okay, <laughs> All right, wait, wait, you're good. This is like a, a treat that horse is here. So. Basically, California Common was German brewers in California trying to make lager. And, and screwing them up. This is what came out. <laughs> screwing 
Indeed. And but as it became a style. As the decades went on and we came into the 20th century, uh, a lot of the breweries ended up closing down because the macro loggers that, you know, blew people away after the prohibition uh, kind of became the favored uh, beer. But over time, um, you may know Anchor Brewing Company. They make their steam beer. So uh, before it was called California Common, it was called steam beer. And... Uh, Anchor trademarked that, and so for the rest of us who don't want to get a cease and desist, we refer to it as the California Common. Okay, wait. So, Steam Beer is California Common. Correct. Is there a Kentucky Common? And what about New York Cream Ales? Horse. When the lager wave struck America in the second half of the 19th century, the west, the East Coast ale breweries uh, all of a sudden saw stiff competition coming up from the lager makers and lagers started uh, uh, propagating from Philadelphia. The original lagers in America were made in Philadelphia and they spread. So in order to compete with those new lager beers, uh, the ale breweries in the East started to make a beer that was very pale and often they mixed it, they mixed both ale and lager yeast, uh, merely in order to compete with the competition, but also in order to be able to use their equipment, which was really ale-making equipment and not lager-making equipment. So this is how the cream ale steel evolved. I agree. And that's pretty cool. So these are the things you learn when you come to Tributary Brewing. We're going to get schooled in beer history because, honestly, I'm going to say it. I don't like to complain, but with everything we went through the last couple of years, drinking so much beer in cans, I love being on premise at a brewery. And I love the difference between different beer styles. So let's do the next let's do the next style because eventually we're going to get to some very interesting darker German beers that that these guys have been working on. So we're not talking about anything that most of you care about, but I think most of our listeners, when you talk about rock beers and you talk about dark lagers, I think that all of us that that are listening now, those are beers that we like to drink. So let's go to the next beer. All right. Next up is our flagship pale ale, which is this one right here in the front. Uh, this is you know 5.2 percent todd wrote the recipe in order for it to be a beer that you could drink any time of year so that's a recipe for tributary yes so well american pale ales are obviously not invented by todd mott but uh he knew that when he wanted to decide on what style of beer to uh kind of have as our flagship you know everyone tends to jump on the ipa train and he wanted something that was a little more sessionable, a little more approachable, and, you know, has kind of the, the Todd Mott mark of, um, you know, being bright, being balanced, uh, you know, not pushing the envelope too much of having an exorbitant amount of hops within it. You know, he wants the malt backbone to shine through, and that's something that uh, I take into consideration and really appreciate uh, as well because, you know, you can only have so many palate records or, you know, beers that are high, in high ABV, you know, before you're feeling it or you're feeling it, feeling it in your stomach. And so, you know, he designed this just to facilitate drinking. And it's something that 
a lot of people in Maine and the Seacoast area have really grown to love. And, uh, you know, we put it out in circulation as frequently well, as Woody, I'll tell you, actually, last summer I was up in this area a couple of times and, and some friends, um, This I think this is how we got to connect. They talked about tributary and we were drinking the pale ale. And uh, I, I I find it's the right beer for me. When I, when I walked in earlier, I went up to the bar and I said, I want the pale ale. So great job. Um, to Horst, Woody was talking about what Todd Mott's beers are. And he said, bright. How, how would you describe them? Because you, you've known and worked with them a long time. Okay. <clears throat> it's very easy to make an extreme beer because behind the extreme alcohol, the extreme bitterness, or the extreme funkiness, you can hide brewing mistakes. Um, if you're a really good brewer and you make a drinkable, well-balanced beer, then you have to really be a master of your craft because if you're not, the customer can taste it and they won't come back. So his beers are not only bright, uh, when, when the beer is not bright, but rather uh, dark or let's say very turbid, very fruity, excessively fruity, then um, you can hide bad quality behind it. The beer behind um, the extreme then can be uh, not very good. However, if you are res restrained and you create a balanced beer, that's very tricky, and that is what Todd knows how to do. That's where his craft shines. And now, Woody, for you, um, you mentioned Weirman beer. I think when I first met Horst, I don't know, 12 years ago, he was at Brooklyn Brewery with Guard Oliver and the Weirman people. Um, let's talk about that connection, because we always talk about ingredients and how important that is to the beer. So, and and you, I know you're young in the sense that you probably won't really know everything until you've done this about 20 more years. But when you think of Weirman and the ingredients that you're working with, tell us what's in your mind about it. Like, is there a reverence? Do you respect it? Uh, well, it goes without saying that when I write recipes, I tend to always go uh, for Weirman products, first and foremost, uh, the quality is there. The variety of, you know, both base malts and specialty malts is unrivaled. And I, I was fortunate enough to visit uh, their malting facility back in 2015. And, you know, seeing in Bomberg, Germany, yep, um, seeing firsthand kind of just their methodical approach in, you know, harnessing the the breadth of what malt can be and how that can be utilized in beer and you know again uh you know, we'll, we'll be going dropping todd's name a whole lot but you know when we write recipes we don't want anything boring we want multi multi-layered beers that you know not only are we going to use just one or one base malt we use you know, for the pale ale alone, we use four different styles of base malt. We have uh, the Weirman Pilsner, uh, crisp, uh, best ale malt, raw two row, and uh, some main grown, uh, main grown and malted barley from Blue Ox up in Lisbon Falls. I've actually talked to them a couple of times on the show. And this year, the Craft Malt Conference was originally scheduled for Portland, Maine. And, and I was going to do a, you would have been invited, Horace, a tasting uh, at the Novari Res. 
of, of um, Maine malts and things. But we'll be back next winter. But so I got to talk to Joel from uh, Blue Ox Malt. That's great. I mean, it, you, you got to work with a little local malt, don't you? Oh, indeed. Yeah. So I'd say about 40% of our pale ale is the uh, Blue Ox. And we love their dark wheat, uh, their Vienna. So their uh, take on uh, Vienna malt is delicious and exquisite. Joel and uh, the Davids are really doing a wonderful job up there. And I've gotten to go and firsthand see kind of the process. And, you know, they're doing floor, malt, uh, floor malting as well, which is, you know, a testament to their respect for tradition and integrity of, uh, you know, the final product and how that can be utilized for breweries in Maine and beyond. Okay, let's talk about beer recipes. So we've got Horst here who wrote one of the, the book. <laughs> I think also I met him through the Oxford Encyclopedia of Beer many years ago, and this guy did do most of the writing and editing, just so you know. But let him, I'm going to talk instead of Horst. <laughs> let me remain humble. <laughs> You're humble, trust me. <laughs> um, but I like to talk about, when I think about craft malt now, I think about how that ingredient can influence your beer. Like we talked about the different types of, of German or Italian pilsners that the hops might influence that profile do you see a, a beer that you might make that could be influenced more by main main malt i mean do you think that like the same way you talked we talked about the california common was a response to the climate and the yeast uh, in san francisco do you see something come i would like fantasize do you see a main malt profile beer coming so i guess it should go without saying that uh, at the annual hop harvest in Gorham, Maine, every year at the uh, hop, oh gosh, the hop yard. Yeah, that's the one. Um, we make our uh, all Maine indigenous uh, wet hop beer. So we're using uh, exclusively uh, Blue Ox malt uh, varieties for uh, the grist bill. And then, you know, we typically get about 100 pounds of fresh cascade as well as 20 pounds of Comet. Wait, so that's something that, uh, what time of year is that and when can I get that beer? <laughs> so typically that's the last week of August or the first week of September. It all depends when the hops are ready because obviously you don't want to uh, push the envelope and harvest too soon. It, but it's not ready yet. Yeah. yeah, so that's when we make it, indeed. Thank you for pointing that out, Horst. Uh, so typically that one is actually because we don't do any dry hopping or anything. It, it goes through um, a process in which we utilize our louder ton as a um, kind of false bottom for which the beer from the Whirlpool will go through to extract, um, you know, the hop oils. And then we have a hop back as well that uh, we, I think, can fit about 50 pounds into. So we'll have it go through that right before going into the So it's an all-main beer. An all-main beer. Mine, minus the, um, the yeast that we source from uh, uh, Belgium, I believe. But, the yeah. Is in, uh, uh, the company is in Lille, but they make it in Ghent in Belgium, the yeast. Well, this is fun. So I walked in here again, Tributary, and uh, I'm sitting not only with Woody, one of the, the, the main brewers here at Tributary Brewing, uh, one of our friends and beer experts, Horst Thornbush, is also here with some German brewers. So this is quite a day for me. And um, it, it tells me a little bit of the magic of this Kittery, Maine, which is really like Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's a very neat place. If you're ever going up to Portland, Maine, 
you, you got to stop here first. And this seems to be like the new crossroads. And uh, I think I'm going to come up here whenever I'm in the area. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. You can become a member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And there's a big push going on now for the business memberships. If you're a business, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to advertise on air, just like you would on other public radio networks. Uh, but check us out, heritageradionetwork.org slash biz, and you get to know some of the great people that work on this network. So, wow, Tributary Brewing. I'm finally here in Kittery, and I, I walk in, there's Woody Mott, who's one of the brewers, and Horse Thornbush. Horse, it was like seven years ago. I was up in Massachusetts and you said, come to my house. We're going to have dinner. You're going to meet this guy, Todd Mott. And we had a wonderful show. Do you remember that show? Like that, that you were just introducing me to them. So tell us about that night and why you love this brewery. Um, well, Todd understands the concept of terroir. Every ingredient is grown in a particular place, and thus it's very different, even though the brand name or the, the, the variety name is identical. Um, a Tetnanger hops grown 10 miles south of the Canadian border in northern Idaho at Bonos Ferry tastes very different from a Tetnanger grown on the east, eastern shore of uh, Lake Constance, where it originates. Uh, Halatawa from Bavaria tastes different from a Halatau grown in Australia and so on. So in other words, um, if you need to understand your ingredients and you have to use great ingredients, in other words, you cannot make a great beer from crappy ingredients, you can make a crappy beer from good ingredients, but you can only make a good beer from great ingredients. Of course, when I talk to you, I think about, it's like the professor who knows so much. Do, do you find that there's certain brewers that, that know every reference you're making, or do you feel like that they all need to learn more from you? Oh, my God. I try not to be an elitist here, please. Um, it's very, uh, I think we have to be generally humble there's always, there are always new things we can learn in life, in all aspects of life. So, I mean, uh, in other words, your question answers itself. The answer is yes, of course. All right. And then there's, there's other things we're going to talk about later in the show. And let's, start, let's do it now because I want to ask you. You mentioned with climate change that we depend on, forget water and yeast, but we also depend on grain and hops for our, our, the beer that we like. 
what's happening with climate change? I've never done a show about climate change and beer, but of course it relates to the ingredients. What's happening? It sounds like uh, you're on the pulse of this. Okay, I can give you one concrete example. One example. Um, Germany uh, produces 40% of the world's hops. The Hallertau region produces about 30% of the world's hops. So this is a huge amount of hops. So take that hops out of the market and we have a deficiency of hops. We have a shortage. Now, um, there is a little thing called a citrus crack bark viroid. It's a virus-like thing that attacks uh, citrus trees in Israel. It's harmless to the citrus trees in Israel, but it has migrated via Slovenia slowly to the Halatau. It attacks the hop gardens and there is no antidote and the hop garden will die. And so they have to contain it. Now they're burning down the hops. They're, uh, they, 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 the fields uh, remain fallow. It's something that has migrated because the climate has uh, the, the temperature has risen by several degrees Fahrenheit in the center hop-growing regions of Germany and the old land races, Hallertauer, Mittelfeu, Spalter, Hersbrucker, uh, and Tettnanger cannot adapt fast enough to the temperature rise. So the farmers get half the yield than they used to get, plus the hops are dying on the vine from new bugs, new pests, um, and the lack of moisture and the high temperature. So we know, if you know about wine in the 19th century in France, there was phylloxera that kind of wiped out... Phylloxera. Phylloxera that wiped out the, some of the French uh, grapes, and they started using American rootstock. But also, New York State... You want to tell us about New York State in the 19th century? New York State was one of the greatest... Cooperstown. Cooperstown and hops producers, and he's going to coach me in uh, New York, and there was also, what was the infection, uh, wasn't there an infection for New York hops in the 19th century? I think it's what called Versicillium wilt. And it basically killed off the, the entire production, and the entire American hop production was centered there. So the hop production had to move westward first to Michigan, and eventually to the state of Washington. So it, it, it just reminds us that so much of the good beer that we like is dependent on agriculture. It's extremely delicate. If we lose the core areas of our uh, agricultural resources for brewing and uh, in hops, 40% um, comes from a very tiny area, roughly the size of Rhode Island in Germany, and another 40% comes from Yakima, the state of Washington, in the state of Washington, Idaho, and Oregon. If we lose those plants, we lose almost all of our hops. This is one classic example, and there are analogous examples I don't want to get into now in the production of brewing barley. So this is very tenuous and climate change is up and we can't move the growing regions north because it has something to do with the exposure of the latitudes towards the sun, the angle to the sun. So we can't just move our agriculture north or, or south in the southern hemisphere. We have to stay where we are. So we have to adapt the plants to the new climate and thus 
barley breeding and hop breeding right now is working furiously to allow us to continue to produce the volume of brewing raw materials at the quality that we are accustomed to as well as the quantity. And perhaps out there in Arizona, there's some wild hops growing that some of our friends are, are working on right now. Woody, how does it feel? You're, so this tributary brewing in Kittery, Maine, you really are this pulse of, of beer. I mean, you're very humble, the fact that you've grown up around this and, and you're working in it. What's the hardest part of, of your job right now? I mean, do you have to, like, you mentioned something, we're going to pull something off a tank that, that horse wants me to taste. What, 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 what's that going to be? Because I don't want you to get up right now, but what, what's that going to be? And then what, how's, what are you going to have to do with that tank tomorrow? So I guess to kind of go full circle with what horse was just talking about, uh, about a month ago, we had Walter Koenig, who is the lead grower. He is the general manager of the Hop Research Center in Germany. He is breeding those new hop varieties that defend the German hop industry against climate change. And there, you're going to be using some of these new hops. Yes. So uh, um, as I was saying, about a month ago, Horst and uh, Walter joined us for a brew day. Um, they had devised a Bavarian IPA. Tack another IPA on the board for uh, the styles that it started, you know, time to jump on the bandwagon and enjoy. And uh, for this first rendition, we're, we're going to do this uh, twice this year, um, you know, once in February. And then I believe we have it scheduled again for sometime either in the late spring or early summer. Um, but we'll figure, pencil those dates in at a later time. Um, but, you know, so for this first brew. Um, so it's Bavarian IPA. That's what you're calling it. That's what we're calling it. So it's using um, minus the yeast and the water, all Bavarian ingredients. So we um, are utilizing Weirman malt as well as uh, those hop, or hop varieties that come from the Hollertau region. Those are the newly bred varieties, one of which isn't even available in the market yet. But uh, Walter ships us uh the test uh, ships us uh, test samples of those new varieties so we can play with them over here and this is how we made the bavarian style ipa well i know that um just in your region uh, notch brewing chris loring also he seems to have uh he's sourcing a lot of classic ingredients as well why wireman so wireman's bamberg um it it's, must be important to trust where you get your ingredients, right? I mean, do you have to test every batch that comes in? Do you have to worry if this is going to gum up your, your fermenter or something? So to try to make a long story as succinct as possible, my, my understanding, and this is secondhand from Todd telling me this, in the 90s, uh, the Weiermans came to Boston for the uh, Craft Brewers Conference. I think they were doing, um, you know, as craft beer was just starting to pick up, I think they were seeing, you know, the writing on the door that they could finally make their splash because um, and Horst, do correct me if I'm wrong. I think that they were having some financial difficulties prior yeah, to then. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, that was, that's past history. But. It was a small local malting company and they had the vision to see that what they were doing for the small German market in Bavaria might have a chance here. And so they decided to risk uh, expansion in anticipation of jumping into the American market, which was very unlikely. And one of the things about Weiermann is they have extremely rigid 
incoming control for the raw barley. So you, you can't make great malt from crappy barley. So they only select the best barley. And where they are located in, in Bamberg, this is one of the best uh, barley growing soils in the entire world. So, Horace, they're a good, talk about craft malt. So, Weimann's a, a, a good model for American craft malters to look to? Way back, they were basically a craft malting company, yes. And since then, they have expanded to become a global enterprise. However, they started very small and they were always interested in super quality. And this is the, 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 the philosophy that they have retained throughout the years as they grew phenomenally. Yeah. So you're in good hands, Woody. Absolutely. And uh, just to kind of uh, finish up that story as quickly as possible, Todd was walking around and checking out booths, and he went to Weirman, talked to Tomas and uh, Sabina, Sabina yeah. and, uh, you know, now... 25 years later they still are very close and you they're know friends. yeah they're they, the moths and the Weirmans and the Dornbush families are all uh you know good together oh great so and since you're talking about german malts and and german beer experts last summer when i got to taste uh, your tributary pale ale uh your dad actually brought me uh it was like a a rye rogan Beer that to me tastes like an Aventinus, and I know Aventinus has inspired you. Let's talk about that beer and, and what do you like about it? Because I can tell you my story about an Oktoberfest in 2001, New York City, not too long after 9-11, and we had a crazy Oktoberfest with a, a live performing artist. I had eight large bottles of Aventinus in one night, and I will tell you this, it was a, one of the greatest nights of my life. But, so why Aventinus? Because that's why we're here today. So I guess to kind of even preface my appreciation for Aventinus, uh, you know, 8% Doppelweitbock, is that it, Horst? It's a Dunkelweizen Doppelbock. Dunkelweizen Doppelbock. can say that 10 times fast. Anyway, so to preface kind of my appreciation for Aventinus, um, you know, having Todd, you know, bring all these beer styles to uh, Portsmouth Brewery and the other restaurant or bars, not bars, uh, breweries he'd been a part of. Uh, one beer that I tried probably when I was 15 was a Hefeweizen. And the the flavors from that just, you know, were different from anything I'd had before. You know, it, it, it brings something to the table that you just don't, didn't find commonly around here at that point. And unfortunately, still, it's not common enough as it should be. But that's uh, so the last time I, I tried the rye, the, the Rogan. So it, we called it Cultivator for short, but it was a Dunkel Rogan Doppelbach. And to kind of rye instead of wheat, right? Rye instead of wheat. And kind of how we came to that, um, I want to uh, first say that uh, the Cultivator was the brainchild of Horst, Todd, and myself. Um, I was drinking an Aventinus one afternoon. Um, in the summer of 2019 and we had just um or it, a, a former or our former lead brewer uh ian goering um had announced that he's moving on and ian had kind of come up with the uh you know for for tributary we usually put out uh one bock beer a year um and ian had kind of created uh, a hellas bock that we'd brewed for a few years and with him uh, 
now moving on, I decided that I wanted to kind of um, give my or, or pay pay homage to Aventinas and being a beer that when I was 19 years old, I was uh, in Chicago at the Publican with my family having brunch, and I had or it just had the most um, exciting description on the menu, and so I had to uh, I had to drink that. I ordered it, and it blew my mind. Just the the richness of um, the layers of malt character that it has, coupled with the uh, Weizen yeast, it you know it it was probably the first beer that I felt was something truly remarkable oh, and fruity. Yes. So what's great is that this this style can evolve. Like dark wheat box lagers, all these things. We talk. I want to talk about the style because I think this is what brought me here. Actually, <laughs> was having that beer last year. And I, I want to say that to many of our listeners, you guys know different styles, and this is one of the greatest styles in the world. So, Horace, tell us about this style and the variations because for many of us, we've had the the Weizenbach, the Doppel Weizenbach. I didn't know there was so much room to play with this. Well, if you replace the wheat malt with rye malt and you use a pale rye malt as well as a roasted rye malt, that is the real trick. Then you're creating a depth of flavor that is unsurpassed and really unique. And the Dunkel Roggen Doppelbock, to the best of my knowledge, and you can go on the internet, it's the only place here where this is being brewed. So this was the first and only time that this beer style was actually implemented. And after the Roggenbock, German for spelt is Dinkel. So we decided to do a Dunkel Dinkel Roggenbock, and Weiermann offers not only a spelt malt, but also a roasted spelt malt. So we are doing basically an Aventinos, but instead of using wheat, we are using pale and roasted spelt malt. So this is what we got here today. That's what you just sipped. So what do you, you got to make it easier on me. You got to rename this beer like the Woody, the Woody Bach or something. The 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 Woodinator. Uh, we we call it Dinkelator for short, and uh, I think people are able to pronounce that one. But uh, you know, I as I said, I was serving beer yesterday, and people will come up and you know they'll squint at the board and they'll say, "What is the Dinkelator?" And I uh, tell them to brace themselves uh, for what I'm about to lay on them because it is a tongue twister in and of itself by name. So, Dunkel Dinkel Doppelbach, and I can say that ten times fast. Um, maybe, but uh, don't. Yeah, I'm not going to now. Let, let the, we're getting somewhere with this. So everyone talks about craft beer. I love craft beer. I love being in the in at a brewery. I love a, a, a place like this, a tasting room. I love experts coming through. This is like the crossroads in New England. But for different beer styles, I mean, there's so many beer styles. Like I, I I'm sorry to my you know my daughter is almost 20. She's almost 21. Younger generation to 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 know that there's so much out there for you and it's really exciting. So. The, you know, styles, Horst. I mean, we've already tried s- several styles here, but Horst, for you, how would you, you got new brewers and new consumers. You're on like a German TV, but English language, because for us, how do you describe just how many different styles there are? You just talked about in this dark beer, just changing 
some of the malt bill? Well, technically speaking, we shouldn't call it a style yet. Um, it's a one-off, and we have to be honest. So you can make zillions of one-offs by just fiddling with the ingredients and the processes and the yeast and all of that, or the water, whatever, water treatment, filtering, not filtering. So to me, a style is something that is picked up by many, many breweries in a large area and is brewed over a long period of time. If it uh, uh, stands the test of time, then it becomes a style. So we should be honest, Woody. Really, the Dunkel Dinkel Doppelbock or the Dunkel Rong Doppelbock is not yet a style, but the Dunkel Weizenbocken Doppelbock a la Aventinos is a style because it has survived over such a long period of time. So that's how we want to look at it. And some of our creations may remain one-offs and interesting or not, but some may actually be uh, path-breaking uh, creations that will actually um, create a totally new experience for many people. So you're around good people, aren't you, Woody? Absolutely. I uh, I am surrounded by brilliance and um, those who are very well informed. And I, you know, I take it upon myself to do the reading. Um, you know, I went to the American Brewers Guild, learn the nitty gritty fun. Uh, scientific side of it because you know we can all go out there and learn how to you know do the brew process but you know something goes wrong or if, if you're thinking of how to devise a style you have to understand uh the big picture and the little picture because that um will better inform us on how to you tweak our processes to make a beer that is trying to um encapsulate what we uh one thing that I love about craft beer is that, yes, many of us are geeks, and we always want to try something different and new, but the, the, the key is that we want something good. And I've noticed we have an offshoot. My friend, Mr. John Hall, created a, a fun thing last year. It was called uh, This Week in Rock Beer, and he's got Camp Rock Beer. So he's got a really great Facebook group, but everyone can talk about drinking rock beers. And I love rock beers, but but... What I want to tell you guys, if you're a part of that group, is, well, the smoke malt is interesting, but what I'm drinking now is that there's so much potential with different malts and that and that I, I'm going to encourage brewers to do it like you guys are doing, that it doesn't have to be small to stand out from hoppy. Right, Horst? Um, a Rauchbier can be very one-dimensional if you're using too much smoke or if you're using peat woods, uh, a peat-smoked malt, for instance. Um, this beer is multi-layered. It's very differentiated. There is a subtle residual sweetness that is not cloying. There's a subtle hop bitterness that is high-quality bitterness. It's a smooth bitterness. There are multiple hop aromatics in there from Mersin, Farnesin, Linado Oil, and so on. So you get all the complexity, and this is what a great brewer can bring out, and that starts with the composition of the recipe. In other words, a bad composition will never sound great, even with the greatest orchestra. So that's how we compose these beers like a, uh, like, like a composer. We take all the notes, and then we hope that the end result will be one pleasing whole that is wonderful. And that's what you're enjoying here. And for me, way back when I started in beer, the Aventinas was my style. So, Woody, what was it about that style that, that, that caught you? Because I think if you can appreciate Aventinas... You, you are able to appreciate the whole world of beer. 
Absolutely. Uh, so when I drink it, you know, it, it, it is a moving beer. Uh, you know, the, the layers of the malt uh, character are just, you know, there, there's so much depth there between, you know, kind of the um, like caramel uh, toffee character that you get from the dark malts. You know, it's not really roasty, but there's some like chocolate tones to it as well. And then, you know, you you get just this very rich, I, I just call it malt character. And I, I think that is evident in the uh, Dinkelator as well, where, you know, it tastes just like eating a fine uh, roasted cereal, almost like something like that. Okay, now we're going to go to another style. So um, I always wonder why people wait in line for a beer when, when they can find a really great brewery or, or, or pub and not have to wait in line to get a good beer. Um, you know, your dad was part of this Imperial Stout. There was a, in New England, it was called Kate the Great, Portsmouth Brewery. I only learned about it probably from Horace a number of years ago. You guys have a, a, that same recipe. Just tell us that beer, when the release is, and w- what's so special about that beer? And why a stout? Like, I like pastry stouts. I like some of those crazy ones, but I don't really buy them. Is this a pastry stout? It sure as hell is not a pastry stout. And um, for the, just to build off that. Yeah, tell us the beer is being released in April. We know that. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here for the, the Dinkle later. <laughs> All right. So Mont Lesser, it is the contemporary of Kate the Great. Portsmouth Brewery got to keep the name. Todd's actually been brewing this since uh, the mid-90s down at Back Bay Brewing Company. And, um, you know, as the years have gone on, he's refined the recipe. It is kind of, I think, um, it, it reflects him as well because, you know, he's never fully satisfied with the end product. There's always something to... Uh, that can Imperial Stout. Like, mm. it's... Does it have to come on a boat from Russia? Does it have to be in whiskey barrels? I mean, it's it's not just a one note, is it? No, it it is a very multifaceted beer. And, you know, when it comes to milling in for that day, we have 21 malts going into it. And it is a beer that gets about five months of maturation for us. Half of that will keep in stainless uh, in one of our horizontals. And the other half goes into, um, a rotating melange of, uh, barrels. So we'll always have port and Madeira. Those are kind of, uh, the staples that, you know, we'll always add barrels. Yes. Port and Madeira barrels. Thank you for pointing that out, Horst. And, um, then we kind of play around with the other two, you know, we may decide to kind of keep one from, uh, one release to another and, or we may decide to change them both up. So for the, version that is coming up in a few weeks port madeira what's the release date because this this show will be airing the first week of april ah well then all you listeners will have the opportunity to come get the beer on april 23rd um i believe we're going to probably package about two thousand barrels or two wow i wish two thousand bottles uh and you know we sell most of them on that saturday but we'll we usually will have a few uh stragglers on sunday um but april 23rd is the day Mark your calendar and uh, come hang out. We have a pretty exciting. Uh, Are there pre-buys or do you just literally wait in line? Uh, well, during the pandemic, or, or traditionally, it was waiting in line. And the um, we have the best parking lot in Kittery. Everyone knows that. Uh, and um, so, you know, we'll have folks that t- 
show up usually between 6 and 7 a.m. And by the time we open at noon, the line is going around the building, kind of usually ends up where uh, the post office is out all the way down at the other side, about uh, 40 yards away, I would say. Wait, and wait, this isn't just lining up for the uh, latest IPA release, is it? No IPAs, just Mont the Lesser. And we, um, we release it twice a year. Uh, the people that search for this beer love the complexity that it brings to the table. You know, it's, uh, we, we only offer, um, well, kind of our means of, uh, providing it to the masses is you get a wristband and with that wristband, you get two bottles, two pours, and then a pour of something else. And that way, you know, oh, wait, so you can only get two bottles, but you can get pours of this beer on draft while you're hanging out too. Indeed. Yeah. So we, we bring in some tents, we have um, food caterers come, and we try to make a party of it. It's it's always a lot of fun. Uh, Todd and I will always be a little. Uh, if I buy a beer, I got free free food. I wish, I wish. I think we have to pay those guys off, unfortunately. But we always have a porchetta sandwich guy come by. That um, uh, he worked with Todd over at the Porson Brewery, and those sandwiches. They're they're meant to be drinking with a big, uh, beautiful beer like Montalette. And I have a smile on my face because honestly, I never thought about. I've never waited in line for beer. I don't wait in line for brunch or restaurants or anything. I'm not a snob. I'm just like, I there's so many great places to go. And and this actually sounds like an amazing festival. Like, I gotta come back April 23rd. Well, I would be pleased to have you, and uh, it'd be a hell of an opportunity to uh, drink one by your by your side. Okay, so Horst. Todd the Lesser, this Imperial Stout. Talk me through the style because I don't understand it. There's different blending. There might be some barrels from other years held back. This sounds like a very like sophisticated drink. Well, I think we can sum this up very generally. Um, the beer changes from the bouquet to the upfront taste, to the middle taste, to the body and then to the finish. It's almost like a different beer throughout the stages of your experience, your sensory experience on the palate. That's one thing. So you get incredible complexity, you get quality, and you get scarcity. So the people stand there because they get complexity, quality, and scarcity. That's why they stand there. And if somebody stands in line for just another hyped, overly bitter IPA. I don't understand why they do that. But then again, everything is distributed by the bell curve. And I think the people who stand in line here, they are at the right edge of the top quality of the bell curve. Well, that's great. Well, Woody, uh, one last question about Todd the Lesser and other of these Imperial Stouts. Um, one, what's the ABV? And two, are you holding back any vintages in bottle, and is that something that people do? Do you know anyone that's collecting them, or do mostly people drink them, not horse? Uh, so typically we'll have people who have um, friends that aren't necessarily beer drinkers come with them just so they can get uh, more than the two bottles. Um, I gather on the secondary market. This is like the sneaker business in New York City. Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's a sight to behold. And, you know, I 
I'm on the fence of how I feel about it, but people will use it as bargaining chips to trade for other beer. As long as you know, you're not trying to, you know, make make money off of it, selling it online, which unfortunately people have done in, in the past with um, Kate the Greats. But, uh, you know, it, it's something that I think is deservedly well sought after. And, you know, having having as many bottles kind of to stick around and uh, enjoy in increments, you know, I always... Okay, so what is someone... Okay, think about trading. I'm trading a Matalesa for a Westfletron. For a Westfletron. Is that an equal trade? I think so, yes. And then what about... Has anyone ever offered to trade a Matalesa for a new car? <laughs> Not yet, but um, I, could, I would... I would partake in that trade. Might happen. So, and Horace, you said you've been actually collecting. How many vintages of of, of these imperial stouts do you have? Several, several in uh, a particular cooler in the basement where I keep my white wine. And what is your goal as a, as a beer expert and knowledgeable person? What would you like to do? I mean, we're almost done with the show, but sure. it's great to talk to Horace. Horse knows. You're collecting these beers. What are you going to do with them? And, and what does it mean to you as a knowledgeable person? Okay. Uh, I hope I'm not off base here. Um, as you know, uh, the alcohol, the ethanol in beer becomes aldehyde as the beer ages and it tastes like cardboard. Um, if the beer is high gravity and made the way this is with very little oxygen in it. The oxygen is all gone. Uh, that staling process is arrested. And that means the beer mellows, like almost like a great red wine. And that's how I look at it. And eventually it will be over the hill, maybe in 10 years or in eight years. I haven't pushed it that far yet. Um, but so the, the taste experience of an extremely well-mellowed beer will be very different from a fresh beer, uh, even a heavy, a high gravity, very complex beer that is uh, saturated with all kinds of Madeira and port wine uh, uh, flavors and oak tannins and so on. So maybe next year we can taste a few of the different vintages, right? There you go. Yeah. All right. And Woody, um, this must be exciting for you. But like I said, so much beer that I drink I, walking in today, my new favorite is the Pilsner. I mean, I, I've had the, the Pilsner a lot, but um, I feel like I'm, I'm, just want to drink good beers and i'm really happy to be in your brewery and your tasting room and the environment here and it's not a mega beer hall this is a very intimate space that that just feels right so you guys are doing a great job here i know your mom's part of that too um anything else you want to say about tributary brewing and now that you, you you kind of life is into this now you're you're working you're working hard and i'm really glad you invited me up thank you so much well, Jimmy, it's been a pleasure to have you, and um, I'm looking forward to going out and having some oysters with you after this. Uh, you know, I think uh, if I if I could leave off anywhere, it would just be that um, I want to be appreciative for, you know, those brewers that came before me, you know, for generations. You know, I, I, I hope in talking to me and Horse, you can realize that uh, we both enjoy the history side of it, and just... Um, kind of looking at the marvels of um, industrialization and how that really changed the face of beer and kind of got us to this point. You know, Tributary, we, we focus on tradition. Uh, we do take opportunities to kind of uh, use traditional means 
to express ourselves um, in a ever-changing uh, brewing, uh, uh, I guess, field of uh, people, what people are, want to get out there and to enjoy. Sorry for fumbling over words, but, um, you know, I just want people to know when they come to Tributary that we pour our hearts and souls into, you know, start to finish, selecting our ingredients, giving the beers the proper mature uh, time to mature, and, you know, you're, you're just going to have a damn fine beer when you're so here. If you're on that crossroads between experience. Boston and Portland, Maine, Kittery, Maine, and Ports of New Hampshire are right in the middle, and I'm having a great time here. I'm going to stay here. We're going to hang out. We're going to go to Row 34 in Portsmouth and have some oysters. But I just want to say thank you guys for having me and um, highly recommend that this old salty seaport, Air Force Base, Navy Yard area called Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, is really like one of the, the, the feature places of food and drink in New England, right up here at Kittery, Maine, Tributary Brewing. Thanks so much, Horst Dornbush, Woody Mott. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Assassins Radio. And thanks to Armin, our engineer, who's going to be cleaning this up. We will catch you sometime later on Beer Assassins Radio. All right. Woo! Thank you. Cheers. Woo! Beer Assassins Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.